Good morning, church. Today's scripture is from 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 19. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful to Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. I want you all to imagine that we're six weeks out into the future, that you're sitting at the family Thanksgiving dinner table, and uh, can you smell it? Can you smell the sweet smell of the turkey coming out of the oven? For some reason, for 364 days a year, I think turkey is dry and disgusting. But one day a year, one day a year, it's delicious and amazing. Uh, Imagine you're loading it up on your plate. And you've got the sweet potato mash there. You've got some cranberry sauce. Anybody getting hungry? Uh, some green bean casserole and some stuffing. And you're ready. You've said grace. You're ready to jump in and start eating that delicious plate of food, which once again, for 364 days a year, you eat none of this. But on Thanksgiving, you eat it. And then you hear it. You hear the voice. It's not the voice of the Lord. It's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's the voice of Uncle Pete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, you all have an Uncle Pete. We all have an Uncle Pete. He might not be your uncle. He's somebody in your family. And if you're thinking, uh, I don't have an Uncle Pete, you might be Uncle Pete. (laughs) It might be you. It might be you. Um, Uncle Pete has incredibly loud and strong opinions, doesn't he? He loves to share his opinions with people. You might have political Uncle Pete. He loves to tell you about who he voted for and how everybody who voted for the other guy isn't very smart or maybe they're morally corrupt, right? You might have like family business Uncle Pete. He loves to stir up trouble. He loves to remember all the old stories that happen in the family, poke at old wounds. He knows all the buttons to press. Or maybe it's academic Uncle Pete. You know, he sits on his throne at the end of the table, and he's looking down on everybody else. He's so smart, and everybody else is so inferior, right? Whatever the case, what starts to happen is, as he says more and more things that are offensive to you, Your blood starts to boil, right? Your teeth start to grind. Your muscles start to tense up. You start to have an actual physical reaction to the tension that's present emotionally, relationally, right? This is called fight or flight. I've been told by my wife who studied neurobiology that there are other responses too. It's not just fight and flight. There's fawn and freeze. Now I'm convinced that psychologists are actually preachers because they love alliteration so much they'll put all those Fs together. But stick with me and imagine fight or flight. These are your two responses, right? 
and you're thinking about Uncle Pete, and you're thinking, I'd like to sweet potato mash him in the face, right? That's one option to fight him. Sometimes there's the physical fights actually break out at Thanksgivings, at Christmases. Maybe you come from a home where this has happened, right? Especially as alcohol is involved. But maybe for you, you're thinking, I'm just going to let him have it, right? I'm going to let him have a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell him exactly what I think. I'm going to fight Uncle Pete right here. Maybe, if you're more like me, you're more of an avoider, and you think, this will just go away, right? If I just kind of sit here quietly, I'll flee, I'll run away from this argument. And each time you take a bite of your turkey and you're chewing on it, you're actually chewing on every word that he says, right? You're thinking about every offensive thing that he's said, and you're thinking, thank God I only have to deal with Uncle Pete once or twice a year. As he's dismissed from the table, as people dismiss themselves from the table at the end of the dinner, you're thinking, I wish Uncle Pete would just dismiss himself from our family, from our life. I'd love to cancel Uncle Pete, get rid of him. Here's the thing. You're not going to face an Uncle Pete every single day in your life. You may only have to deal with him once or twice a year, right? You're already thinking about it now. I've already kind of given you the forewarning. It's coming at Thanksgiving soon, right? But every single day of your life, you interact with other human beings. You interact with people at work. You interact with people in your immediate family, your roommates. You interact with people here from your church, from your family here. And if your response is fight or flight, really the fruit of that is not the sweet, sweetness of the apple pie you're going to get at Thanksgiving. The fruit of that is bitterness. It's hostility. It's division. And in a place that's meant to be marked by unity and oneness, like the church, like a family, instead you get uh, that table is set now for division, for separation, um, for drawing further and further apart from one another. If you choose the path of fight, if you choose the path of flight, our tables are not filled with unity and oneness. They're not filled with reconciliation and forgiveness. They're filled with division and hostility and bitterness. In the text that we're looking at this morning, uh, we're going to see that David and Joab choose alternate routes. They choose the route of fighting when presented with tension or fleeing when they're presented with tension in an effort to uh, uh, solve, resolve the conflict that's been brewing in Israel. But in the end, sin brings further division. Sin divides, and it's wisdom that unites. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful for your word, that you reveal yourself to us through your word. We pray that as we open up this text in 2 Samuel, uh, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, who brought these words to life then, bring them to life now. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to give a quick shout out. I see Pastor Marcus back here. We're so, we're so glad that you're back, Pastor Marcus. He had surgery a few weeks ago for his hip. So good to see you, Pastor Marcus. Um, this morning, we're looking at chapters 19 and 20 of 2 Samuel. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will come down the aisle and bring a Bible to you. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please hang on to this one. It's our gift to you. Uh, también tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia de la Biblia en español, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español. Y alguien va a traer una copia a usted. Si no tiene en su casa, este es nuestro 
Regalo usted. Right here too, Max, if you could bring one over here. Uh, like I said, we are in chapters 19 and 20 of 2 Samuel. Uh, and we've been going through this series in the life of Israel's first three kings. It's called We Want a King. Uh, we're drawing near to the end of David's story as Israel's second king. He has this incredible rise to the throne, marked by humility, dependence on the Lord. Uh, it's marked by faithfulness, by mercy. But there's this massive turning point in David's life and in his reign. In 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we read the story of how David, rather than stewarding his power to bless the people that he leads, leverages his power in order to take from his people. The language is used that he takes Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then in an effort to cover up his sin, he, uh, he puts Uriah on the front lines of battle. He murders him in an act of collateral damage. And not only Uriah, but the hundreds of men who are on the front line with him in order to make this murder look like a military defeat. So Nathan, the prophet, confronts David. He repents. But as we saw last week as Pastor Dave preached, the consequences live on in the next generation. David chose the path of sexual assault. It comes back up again. Amnon, his son, assaults his daughter Tamar. David chooses the path of murder. It comes up again. His son Absalom kills his son uh, Amnon. And it, he chooses the path of wielding military power for his own gain, and it comes back again because Absalom, his son, wields military power in order to get what he wants. He ousts David from the throne. Now, David's in exile, and this really tragic battle happens between his son and his son's army and him and his army. And in the end, Absalom dies, and David is completely overcome with grief. He's experiencing utter despair. And we get the sense from chapter 19, early in the chapter, that his grieving has gone on for a very long time. That it's starting to become an embarrassment to the people. They're becoming restless. They aren't sure that they made the right decision by supporting David in the first place. And as the reader, we're wondering, we're hoping that after this brutal, tragic civil war between father and son... Can there be peace in Israel? Will God's people be united again somehow? How is David going to respond? Well, the pattern that emerges is that in light of the tension between God's people, David just chooses the path of avoidance. Let's take a look, if you would, uh, at verse 24. We're going to see the first way that David avoids the tension is by rushing a solution. Look at chapter 19, verse 24. It says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. So David's headed back into Jerusalem. He was in exile. Uh, and on his way out into exile, he's met by a number of people. One person curses him and is throwing rocks at him. He's got another person who blesses him and, and helps him. But one of the people who meets David on his way out is his former servant, Ziba. Now, earlier in the book, we met Ziba and Mephibosheth. Uh, what happens is David says, I want to show kindness to one of Saul's sons, Ziba finds that there is one descendant of Saul remaining, a man named Mephibosheth, who has been injured as a child such that he is unable to walk now as an adult. 
David brings him into his house. He blesses him. He shows kindness to him. And then he gives him an inheritance and land. And he says, Ziba, now you're going to be in charge of overseeing his land. Ziba now belongs to Mephibosheth as a servant. But what happens is on David's way out, Ziba meets him. And he says, listen, David, you remember Mephibosheth? He's turned on you. Now Mephibosheth is supporting Absalom. He doesn't support you anymore. And David, in a, in a hasty decision, decides, I'm going to just give you, Ziba, all of the land that I gave to Mephibosheth. It doesn't belong to him anymore. Now it's yours. All the land, all the inheritance, all the servants, everything. You now are the owner of all of that. Well, Mephibosheth comes and meets David on the way back into Jerusalem. And it looks like he's pretty haggard. He's pretty disheveled. Looks like he hasn't really taken care of himself, but he made the journey somehow on his own to meet David. And David asks him, he confronts him in verse 25. He says, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? But Mephibosheth tells David that he's actually been tricked by Ziba. Mephibosheth asked Ziba to saddle a donkey for him and to go and meet David on his way out of Jerusalem. But instead, Ziba took the donkey and slandered Mephibosheth. Look what 27 says. He, Ziba, has slandered your servant, Mephibosheth, to my lord the king, David. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. So what should David do? He has two people who are making competing claims. Ziba says Mephibosheth turned on him. Mephibosheth says he was tricked. What should he do? The right thing would be for David to investigate this claim further, right? To confront Ziba, to say, is this what really happened? To try and pursue justice, to try and restore and make right what, what went wrong here. But David's in a hurry. <laughs> this conflict is too messy for David. It's going to take too long to sort out. So David makes another hasty judgment. Look what he says in verse 29. Why speak any more of your affairs, Mephibosheth? He's tired of listening to Mephibosheth talk. I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. The literal result of David rushing through the conflict, the literal result is division. And it's because David is more concerned with Jerusalem than he is with justice. Maybe you're a conflict avoider. Conflict, anybody else? I'm a conflict avoider. Anybody else out there? You just don't like it. makes you feel weird. You want to get through it. Uh, you're probably familiar with this move. I pull this move all the time. You just say sorry as quickly as you can. You know, move along, try to get to the end, uh, get to a fast resolution so you can be done with it. But here's the problem with the fast resolution, with saying sorry and moving on. Sometimes restoration and reconciliation can't be dealt with quickly, can they? Sometimes you need to uncover the roots of a conflict. Sometimes there's deeper hurt beneath the surface that's been stewing for a while. Sometimes there's pain hidden from the past. Maybe there's an injustice that needs to be set right. If we only address the surface of tensions, of conflicts, with band-aids and quick solutions, the conflict will continue to grow and boil. It will fester like an open wound. David doesn't want to deal with all that messy stuff. He doesn't want to deal with the hard work of restoration. He wants the quick solutions. He leaves the wrong undone, unresolved, and for Mephibosheth to deal with. 
He rushes through the conflict. It leads to division. And then the next route he takes on his conflict avoidance tour is he refuses to address the conflict that's in front of him. Let's take a look at verse 41. It says this. All the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? So we got to take a time out. Israel is the name of the northern tribes of this nation. So 10 tribes in Israel, two tribes in Judah. So it says here that all the men, there's some kind of corporate debate, corporate argument publicly, the men of Israel come to David because he's the king and they're trying to settle a matter. They're upset with Judah. They're upset with how Judah handled bringing David back in to the land. But notice what doesn't happen. David isn't the one who responds here to Israel's complaint. Look who is the one who responds. It says, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? So David, it's okay. David, even though he's the one being talked to, now he has another chance. He can actually respond. Israel talked to him. Instead, Judah responded. Now he has a chance. He can talk to Judah and Israel. He can set this straight, right? But instead, the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have 10 shares in the king, 10 tribes. And in David, we have more than you. Why did you despise us? Weren't we the first ones to bring back the king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So essentially what you have here is you have a family table where the last, the last and loudest one wins, right? Israel's the fiercest with their, or Judah's the fiercest with their words. They're the loudest ones. And so they win this conflict. And David is utterly silent through it all. He steps back and he lets them duke it out, right? The loudest voice wins. David's the king, and he's the one being spoken to here. He has the responsibility to intervene in this conflict. He has the responsibility to address this tension that's here. It's been brewing since earlier in the chapter, and really largely because of how he manipulates the conflict in the first place, but now he sits back. Maybe you've been there in your workplace. Maybe you've been there in your family. Maybe you've been there with a friend group or your roommates. You see two of your friends, and just when they talk to each other, they miss each other. There's bristling that happens, and you can see it's like a, watching a car crash unfolding and not knowing how to stop it, right? And you think, well, listen, it's, it's their beef. It's not mine. It's their responsibility to sort this out. It's not my responsibility. So I shouldn't enter in. But when the conflict and the tension boils over into the rest of your family, it's your responsibility. When the conflict and the tension blows up your workplace environment, it's your responsibility. When the conflict and the tension affects this family here, it's everyone's responsibility, right? It's everyone's responsibility. See, David, David had the opportunity to put a stop to the division by just bringing clarity to the situation. He had an opportunity to address what was going on, but instead he sat back, he let it play out, he refused to engage, and it yields more division. 
Chapter 20, verse 1 says this. There happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So the very thing that David's trying to recover from, the very thing he's trying to stop happening, another civil war, now has come to fruition because of his decisions to manipulate, rush, and avoid the tensions that have been brewing in God's people. So now we're left to somebody else's way. Somebody else is going to try to resolve this conflict their way. In steps Joab. Now, Joab is David's general, but he acts more like a hitman than an officer. He's kind of the fixer, the closer. He's the one who comes in and does the dirty work that David doesn't want to do. And Joab's way of resolving tension is to choose aggression, not avoidance, aggression. But he doesn't necessarily have Sheba on his mind first. He's got some other business he needs to take care of. He's got some business of revenge that he needs to take care of. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 20 now, uh, verses 9 and 10. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So kind. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. Uh Uh-oh. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach. Bad stuff happened. Hi, kids. So glad that the elementary school kids are with us here this morning. Uh, And Amasa died a brutal death here. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So we need to rewind a minute here. What is going on? Who's Amasa? Well, Amasa was Absalom's general. So remember Absalom, David's son. He says, I don't want to be under your rule anymore, David. I'm going to lead my own kingdom. So he appoints his friend, Amasa, his cousin, to come and be his general of his army. So then why is Amasa here and why is he on David's side? He should be dead, right? He's a part of this rebellion. Well, what happened was David, in an effort to really win more votes, to, over, uh, to win over the people of Israel, he says, I'm going to play this little game of political appointments. I'm going to fire Joab as my commander of my army, and I'm going to hire my son's commander to lead my army, and maybe I can sway some people to follow me that way, right? Maybe that'll kind of stitch up uh, the people now that are divided. But Joab doesn't play this game. Joab's not about the politics, right? Joab is straightforward. See, he sees Amasa and he sees traitor who took my job, right? This guy's treasonous. He needs, to be, he needs to be paid back. He needs to be punished. So Joab, when he is presented with this tension, with this conflict, chooses payback. He pretends to come to Amasa in peace, but in the other hand, he's holding the sword to stab him. Joab is a man hungry for revenge. Have you ever had one of these conversations with yourself? You finish an argument with somebody or there's tension that you had with somebody and you get in your car and you start to think about all the smart things you could have said, all the comebacks that you had. It's not just me, right? (laughs) Hopefully some other people. You think about all the sarcastic remarks you could have made. 
how you would have won that argument. You really would have put them in their place, showed them, right? Why do we do that? What's fueling this desire to pay people back for the wrongs that they've done to us? We want to punish people, whether that's with actual violence, with cutting words, with stonewalling, passive aggression. We want to put people in their place after they've hurt us. We want justice, but we don't want it on the Lord's terms. We want it on our terms, right? It's probably why we love the revenge genre of entertainment. And more and more TV shows and more and more movies have this theme of the Punisher coming to punish all the bad guys or John Wick coming to set the record straight, right? More and more, we see that our culture is obsessed with payback. It's obsessed with revenge. Whether it's uh, TV shows or movies, we love seeing the bad guys get what's coming to them. But the result of Joab's strategy is not peace. It is not unity. It is not love and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's blood. That's the result of his strategy. It's death. It's the people of God killing each other. It's brother killing brother. And as we'll see, Joab is willing to take it even further. Joab is willing to choose the way of ruthless elimination of threats. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Sheba, so the one who's, you know, follow me, that guy. Uh, he's passing through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. I want you to notice something. The author names this town for us. And I think there's a point he's trying to get across. Did you notice the name of the town? Abel. Does that sound familiar? The name of the first murdered human, the first martyr for the Lord, was named Abel. It's a story we find in Genesis 4. And he's not murdered by a random stranger He's not murdered by a violent criminal or a warlord. Abel is murdered by his brother. He's murdered by Cain. And I think that the author wants us to hold that in our minds as we see the image of a siege mound pushed up against this city, Abel, as we read about how Joab is willing to tear down this city brick by brick, to beat down the door, to throw down the walls. Some of you are not conflict avoiders. <laughs> There's things I appreciate about that. <laughs> but if you come into a conflict and your goal is to win, you've already lost. Married folks, you already know this, right? <laughs> if you come into an argument with your spouse and your goal is to win that argument, it's already game over. You've already lost, both of you. The division grows, nobody wins. And it's because the goal of a conflict is not to win, it's to become one. The goal of a conflict is not to win it, it's to become one, to be reunited, to be reconciled. You're not battling your enemy when you're in a conflict with your brother. You're battling an enemy together 
fighting against the divide between you, fighting against this common enemy, remember the name of the town, Abel. Winning is losing. And Joab has nothing on his mind but winning at all costs. The results of David's avoidance were more division. The results of Joab's aggression are violence and bloodshed. And we finally get an alternative way. Look with me, if you would, at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 20. A wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Notice the alternative that the wise woman offers us. Courageous intervention. Bold, courageous intervention. She has the most courage of anyone in this story. This is the middle of a siege. There's a full-on attack against this city. The battering rams are out, and this woman puts her life on the line by poking her head over the wall and shouting to Joab. Who is she to Joab? Joab's on a rampage. He could kill her easily. She courageously steps into the middle of this conflict and pleads, pleads for conversation rather than bloodshed. She calls to Joab and she asks him to listen rather than speak. It's repeated four times. Did you see that? Listen, listen, listen. I'm listening. The alternative way, the way of wisdom has to start there. It has to start with courageous bold, spirit-led intervention in the tension, in the conflict, and a plea to listen. It needs to start with people who are bold enough to enter in at risk of losing or damaging their friendship because they dare to try and save it. It has to start with people who are humble enough to listen to one another rather than win at any cost. The way of the wise is courage. The way of the wise is listening. Lady Wisdom cries out. She cries out just like she cries out in the Proverbs, and her plea is to listen. And she gives us more to learn. Look at what it says in verses 18 and 19. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The wise woman here appeals to their collective and corporate identity as a people. They're a city here, Abel is, a city of peace, shalom in Israel, a nation that's meant to be known for its peace, its shalom. They're a faithful people to the Lord in the midst of a nation that has a faithful God. They're meant to display what that faithful God is like to the nations. They're a mother in Israel, providing wise counsel, negotiating solutions of peace for her children. Meanwhile, Israel's father is off fighting wars from his throne, stoking violence. The woman appeals to their identity as a people set apart, the people of God, the congregation, a kingdom of priests, 
a light to the nations surrounding them. Division has no place among this people. It doesn't belong in Israel. It doesn't belong with God's people. And the wise woman then negotiates peace between Israel and Judah. And I'm not going to stand here and pretend like it's not gritty and gruesome. You can finish the story on your own. You can read what happens. There's children in the room. Um, there's a, gr- a gritty and gruesome end to this story. But peace has a cost. Peace among this people came at the expense of one man's execution. How easy is it for us to forget our identity as God's people? How easy is it for us to think that division is fine? It just belongs here. To forget that division is antithetical to our identity as God's people, that it undermines our mission to the world, that it has no place here in the church of Jesus. And our peace has a cost, right? Our peace had a cost. It wasn't the execution of a traitor. It was expensive. It was the execution of the true king himself. It wasn't a temporary peace. It's a permanent peace purchased in his blood. Jesus intervened courageously in human history. And he's still intervening in our lives today, isn't he? He's still drawing us to one another and reconciling us to each other today, isn't he? Maybe there's someone in this room that you need to reconcile with. Or maybe someone's been on your mind as I'm talking about this. I want you to be courageous. Maybe the spirit of peace is calling you to unity with your brother or your sister. Don't ignore the intervention, the courageous intervention of the Holy Spirit in your life. Listen. Do not ignore the appeals to your identity that the Holy Spirit is making. You are the people of God, united in the blood of Jesus. Listen. We're meant to be a people that's marked by forgiveness, a people that's meant to be marked by reconciliation, by unity, by love. Do not ignore the prompting of the Spirit to set things right where they need to be made right. It might be difficult. It might come at a cost. It's going to take courage, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It is our identity. It is our witness to the world. People are watching us, folks. They're watching how we love each other. They're watching to see if we believe the gospel we preach. I want to close with the words of Paul from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen to this. There's one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Folks, wisdom unites us. We must be one for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful 
that you courageously intervened in human history, that you stepped in, that you care not only about reconciling us to the Father, to yourself, but you care so deeply that we are reconciled to one another. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us boldness and courage, grace and humility. Help us to listen to one another with love. Help us to not be afraid of entering into conflict and tension, but to see it as an opportunity to become one, to be reconciled, to be reunited with our brothers and sisters. Teach us how to do this better and better every day, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.